All right. I'm really excited to preach. Someone said, you standing up? I said, yeah, till I fall down. I'm standing up. Last Sunday I preached in a chair, and that was quite comfy, and uh, I like that, but this feels uh, a little more natural to me. I would like to encourage you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be at two different passages, one in Luke and another one in John, and there is a Bible app event for this. Um, we had a pretty busy weekend this week. My wife and I went to Pittsburgh to a wedding, and uh, we decided, oh, let's go to the Strip District, and then we decided as well, um, let, let's go ahead to, uh, um, oh man, I can't think of the place where, Phipps Conservatory, we took mom there, and uh, oh, you know what, let's go see this show of uh, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel stuff, and uh, we've been on, on the road, man, a lot, and I got in at 6 o'clock, this, or not 6 o'clock, at midnight last night at 6 o'clock, I looked at my uh, message and realized I hadn't done a live event yet. So if it's a little scant and just has the Bible stuff there in the version Bible app, that's why uh, I was doing some other things, having too much fun at weddings and things like that. So I do want to mention this. Uh, I am really indebted to Dane Ortland, and I'm also indebted to the Bible Project for some of the thinking I'm going to share with you. And Dane Ortland, well, both of them, in fact, regarding the key verse. Our key verse is on the screen. It's Exodus chapter 6, I'm th- sorry, 34 verse 6. And uh, it's also on the wall behind me. Do you see those words there? And I'm pretty bad at saying thank you to people. Um, I'm thanking Laurel, who's not here right now. She was kind of the brainchild behind that and different ones of you that helped out put that up. Uh, I think that's great because it focuses on the things we're talking about. Uh, We uh, uh, are talking about Moses when he had to help the Israelites move into the promised land. He said to God, this is a pretty stout job you got for me here. How about showing me your glory? And when I think of God's glory, I think of thunder and lightning, the glory of God, the kind of glory kind of thing. And uh, God said, you want to see my glory? I'm going to show you my goodness. And then he did. And uh, when he passed in front of Moses, God proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so those words about God are words that we're using to talk about who God is during this Advent season. Last Sunday, we talked about how compassionate God is. This morning, our word is gracious, and we're talking about God's grace. And we're going to look at uh, the story of when Mary uh, is met by the angel. The angel actually seeks her out to tell her what's going down. So if you follow along in your Bible or the Version Bible app, we're going to start at Luke one twenty-six and read about a dozen verses there. In the six months month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. And that's a key phrase. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the one who is born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. 
Now, I want to say to you that right out of the box, I mean right away, the very first part of that story is about grace. But you might not see the concept of grace. You might not have seen it as I read all 12 or 13 of those verses. But it's there. It's kind of hidden in plain sight. Good things from God, they often are hidden in plain sight. And this idea of grace, evidently it wasn't even real apparent to Mary. And as we read her story, we could miss it as well. I want you to look closely, and if you do, you'll see grace right there from the beginning. Right at the start, in the very first sentence I read, Mary is alerted to God's grace. Look at the verse again. It's verse 28. The angel said to her, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, I understand why the angel said that. Because uh, there have been numerous times when as a pastor, I've shown up unexpectedly, maybe at someone's home or at their place of work. And they're like, Pastor Steve, what are you doing here? And I can see that whiff of panic, you know, kind of go over their face like, was there an accident? Is someone in trouble? Why is the pastor here? And as soon as I see that, the first thing I want to do is lay aside their worries. And so I'll say, hey, you know what? I just happened to be nearby and I thought, I'm just here to say, hey, nothing's wrong. No problem. Okay, good. It's kind of what I see Gabriel, I'm sorry, Gabriel doing here. In verse 28, he shows up. That's got to be scary to a teenage girl. An angel is here. I don't know what he looks like, but he must not look like everybody else. And he's just showing up here. And the first thing he says are words of grace. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That's not just the tip of the hat on the part of the angel Gabriel. It's a declaration of truth. Greetings, God has extended extended his grace to you. Now, I say his grace because that's what highly favored speaks of, God's grace. In fact, in the New Testament, the Greek term charis, which we get the word charismatic or charisma from, that word means grace. And that's the word that is used there that's translated favor. God's grace is with you, Mary. Don't worry. God's grace is here for you. And scholars even look at this passage Luke 1, 28, is one of the first times in all the New Testament writing that you find this theme of grace being put out there. Greetings, Mary. You have received grace from God. And she didn't even know it. Do you know why? (laughs) Because often the goodness of God is hidden. It's hidden right in front of us. It's hidden in the manger. The passage reminds me that we are seen to be constantly in need of reassurance of God's grace in our life. Even Mary evidently needed reminding because Gabriel's first words when he says, greetings, you who are highly favored of God, the Lord is with you. Mary doesn't respond to that with, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I know about the grace thing. Yeah, I know. For a minute, I was kind of worried when I saw you, but if I'd have been thinking, I'd known about the grace. What you up to, Gabriel? What are you here for? That's not her response at all. In fact, if you look at her response... In the very next verse, you see that she is troubled, not just troubled. Well, read it. It's verse 29. It says, Mary is greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of grace greeting this may be. The word there means agitated. It's kind of like your washing machine that does your clothes, shaking around inside, moving around, upset. 
agitated through and through. You could even say that the language there means, and, and, and Mary was shaken to the core. Shaken to the core. Why? He's there with grace. And so in the very next verse, the angel repeats himself. Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor, grace, charis. You found it from God. It's hard to see it, though, isn't it? It's often hard to see the goodness of God. But you'll see it if you look into the manger. You know, as I read this, I can't help but think to myself how grace has a source and grace has a recipient. Have you ever encountered someone who, and I sincerely doubt that you have, but I've encountered people like this, who, who've been angry with God, and they say something like this. They say, well, you know, it's taken me a long time, but I've finally forgiven God. Some of you kind of chuckled at that. I know why you chuckled, and I chuckle along with you. They, they finally forgave God. They finally gave God a little bit of grace, so God doesn't have to pay for whatever it is he did. Now, I want to say, when, when people have said that to me, I never argue with them. Because I know that kind of feeling and that kind of word, that kind of sentence, is coming from a deeply emotionally pained place, right? And so I'm not going to try to fix that emotional pain by saying, you're wrong, I'm not going to do that. But actually, it would be much more accurate for them to say, you know, it took me a long time, Pastor Steve, but I finally dealt with that grudge that I was holding against God. You see the difference there? It's an important difference. They don't need to forgive God because God never needs forgiveness. God never needs grace. Grace is only needed by individuals who have committed some kind of offense by those who have sinned. And God never sins. He never does anything evil or wrong. He, he never needs to be forgiven. He never needs grace. Human beings need grace. In fact, among people, grace can, needs to be a two-way street. It needs to be reciprocal. You give me grace when I do something that you found offensive, and I receive that grace. And likewise, I give you grace, and you receive that grace. Enduring human relationships rely on, they must have, reciprocal grace in place. But God doesn't need reciprocal grace. He doesn't need to receive grace. He only gives grace grace. He is the source of grace. Greetings to you who have received the grace of God. The Lord is with you, highly favored, given grace. Mary, you are highly favored by God. You're not going to believe how this is going to pan out. Because grace has something, is something that we can't earn, receiving grace really has nothing to do with what we do. Theologian Wayne Grudem, who has a real gift for defining words in a sentence. You know, if you look up grace, maybe uh, in another theological dictionary, you will read pages there. Grudem has the ability to do that. But Grudem can also say grace, well, that's God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. And he would be right. Who are those that deserve punishment? Well, the Apostle Paul says it's everybody. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need grace. And if grace is God's goodness to us, then grace is never based on our good deeds. 
If you get goodness from God because of what you have done, it's not grace, it's payment. If I do something good, then I expect to be paid. But that's not grace, that's payment. Nor is grace based in who you are, that's notoriety. Grace is always based in the giver and never in the recipient. And the giver, he sees grace as a matter of delight. When you look at the ways that grace is used in Scripture, there's always a sense of delight in it. I, I can't help but think that when, when Gabriel says the second time to Mary, greetings you, who are, greetings, you who are highly favored, that he's smiling. It would be so delightful to communicate grace that way and find delight in it. And God finds delight in giving grace. He takes delight in grace because he takes delight in us, that which he has created. Now, I didn't say that God gives us grace because we're delightful. Frankly, some of us are more delightful than others, right? I said that God, the giver of grace, chooses to take delight in you and me. He doesn't take delight in who we've made ourselves or what we've accomplished or all the good stuff we've done. He simply takes delight in the fact that he made you, and he's done that from the start. When you read the creation story in Genesis 1, you you see over and over again, it seems that God creates something, and then having created it, he says, the scripture says, God saw that it was good. That's not God kind of realizing, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at this creation stuff. I should have tried this an eon ago. Look how cool I am at this. Rather, that is God simply looking at what he made and taking delight in it. And if you are an artist, you know the feeling. Because maybe you've drawn a picture and hung it on the wall. Maybe you've made a quilt or maybe you tanned a hide and you put it up there and you say, I really like that. It delights something in my soul. That is how God feels about that which he has created and that which he redeems. He simply takes delight in what he's created. But more than that, God's grace is given because he likes giving grace. He loves to give grace to people. So when I was a kid, I grew up in an alliance church. My pastor and his family, they were great people, good teachers. Somewhere along the way in that church, in my growing up spiritually, I got this feeling, perhaps from well-intentioned teachers, I don't know where I got it, but I got this feeling in my head that God was never happy about forgiving my sin. I got this idea in my head that God didn't like it when I came to him to confess my sin. But I knew that was the only way to be forgiven because I know the confession of sin is what makes us pure and righteous. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I gotta go tell Jesus about my sins, but I really hate doing that because it's gonna make him mad. I'm, I'm pretty young at the time, maybe 30. And I'm thinking, man, I know what he's gonna do. I'm gonna say, God, please forgive me. I did that bad thing again. And Jesus is gonna be like, Steve, I'm really getting so tired of having to forgive you of this. We've talked about this every day for the past 30 years. I just don't like doing it. I'm going to forgive you, but would you ever get your act together? 
Wow. <laughs> now, of course, God is not pleased when we sin. But how does he react when you come to him for grace and forgiveness? I'm going to read you a portion from Dane Ortland's book. And in fact, I believe it's in the Version Bible app, maybe up toward the top if you want to reference it later. Listen to what Ortland says. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy, so he has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care that is being freely provided. How does the doctor feel? What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help in healing. It's the whole reason he came. So it is with us. So it is with Christ. Jesus does not get flustered or frustrated when you come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It is what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of grace to his people. He finds delight in you coming to him for the thousandth time and saying, I did it again. He finds delight in the fact that you're there. It's the whole point. It's what he came for. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. That goodness of God, that grace of God, it's right there in the manger. I want to ask you to turn to another passage of Scripture. It's in the Gospel of John. It's chapter 1, verse 14. We're just going to read four verses here. I would love you to see it on the page if you have a Bible or app with you. Advent, that is this Christmas holiday, and communion, which we're going to celebrate here in a few moments, they show us that God is never short on grace. They show us that God is never stingy with grace, that God actually overflows with grace. And you can see that as John writes these words. And remember in the Gospel of John, this is his Christmas story. This is his account of the Advent. It's taken from a little different perspective. He says in verse 14 of Jesus, who is the Word in the flesh, he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus, it says, is full of grace and truth. 
Take a moment and look at the middle of verse 14. Do you see when John says there, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us? He says, we have seen his glory. And do you remember, we talked about it earlier today. We talked about it in depth last week, that when Moses said, I would like to see your glory, God obliged him by showing his goodness. His goodness. You could almost rephrase, although I wouldn't want to write it down this way, but you can almost think of verse 14 as saying, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his goodness. The goodness of the one and only son who came from the father. And that goodness, what is he filled with? It's at the end of verse 14, grace and truth. I want to tell you, I feel like people rob grace and truth of its grandeur (laughs) by defining them as though they were opposites. Well, there's grace, and of course, there's truth. Two different things, maybe hanging on scales, grace and truth, back and forth, are like two sides of the force. Star Wars, great movie, bad theology. Okay? Hmm. But you've heard people do it, right? You've heard someone, when you talk about grace, they're like, well, yeah, there's grace, but don't forget, there's truth too. As though they oppose one another. They do not oppose one another. They are embodied in the same one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and truth together. In fact, you might even say that truth is the basis of grace because Christ, who calls himself the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is also the embodiment of grace. They are together, grace and truth. And John, in in this passage we just read, is not setting them in opposition or not trying to have some kind of a balance. Well, yeah, you can have grace, but you better watch out because there's truth. If if I was going to write it down, I'd say this. There's grace. Grace is, I forgive you. And there's truth. Truth is, and my forgiveness is your only hope. Grace and truth. I love them. They're like chocolate. (laughs) Because of the truth, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace overflows to us. You saw it in 116. Look there again. It says, out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. I really love how the ESV puts it. I'm putting it on the screen for you. It says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I love that language. You ever go to the Olive Garden? My wife and I go to the Olive Garden. My wife and I go to the Olive Garden and uh, always get the big salad. You know, Easy on the croutons, give me lots of pepperoncinis. That's what I want. And then the waiter or waitress comes up, you know. And uh, I don't know if you ever noticed those guys, their right arm is like huge because they're cranking that cheese thing. Have you seen that, you know? And they'll come up and they'll say, Okay, would you like some Parmesan cheese on this? Fresh grated Parmesan cheese? Yes, please. Okay, say when. (laughs) I'm not saying when. I have literally sent them back to the kitchen for more cheese. You know why? Because I want cheese upon cheese. That's what I want on top of my salad. God, if you were in need of cheese upon cheese, he would give it to you. But what you are in need of, what Mary is in need of, what I am in need of, is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that 
is what he poured out. It's on the screen. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Where's the goodness of God? It's hidden right in front of you. It's right there in the manger. And this goodness, it's hidden right here in this communion meal, in these elements. This goodness that's in the manger is hidden right there on the cross as he pays the penalty for my sin and yours. And this goodness, it's hidden right in front of you. Remember I told you about my buddy Tom, who we would go hunting together, and Tom would see all the wildlife. Did you see that giraffe, Steve? I'm in McKean County, I don't see a giraffe. He never saw things that weren't there. I'm being silly with the draft, but Tom had an eagle eye. He could see things that I didn't even see. And finally, out of the blue one day, he just gently said to me, you know, you got to look. <laughs> and they're not going to pop out and say, you who, Steve, are you paying attention? you got to look. It's the way it is with the goodness of God. You've got to look for it. And it's worth looking for. Because I'll tell you, without the goodness of God, without what's hidden in the manger, without what is represented by this bread and this cup, we know we do not live a life of grace, but we, we experience a death, a death of works, a death of trying to be good enough, a death of feeling like we'll never measure up, a death of feeling like they all have it together, but I don't. Let me tell you something. None of us have it together. None of us have it together. Anyone here, have it together. Put your hand up. Because we're going to talk afterward, buddy. (laughs) I haven't told a story in a long time. I had a buddy. He was a a pastor of a different denomination, and he felt that he had entered into sinless perfection. Before that conversation was over, he was really mad at me. (laughs) And he hadn't entered into sinless perfection. None of us, none of us have our act together. All of us need grace after grace after grace to be poured out. And if we don't hold on to that truth, if we don't preach that truth to ourselves with regularity, we will revert very quickly into a faith plus works equals salvation. And then when we stand before God, if he were to ask us that fabled question, why should I let you into my heaven? Our answer will be, well, because I, and I want to tell you, I want to tell you, because I is the wrong answer. Because I, grace is never a because I kind of thing. The only answer is because Jesus. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. There's a really great YouTube video. I encourage you to look it up. It's by one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, preaches with a Scottish accent. That's not why he's my favorite, but that does give him points. In that video, he invites us to imagine the thief on the cross being asked that question when he gets to heaven. Why should I let you into my heaven? And of course, he can't talk about baptism, right? (laughs) He, He can't talk about church attendance. He can't talk about working. I worked in children's ministry and you should have seen those kids. That's got to count for something. He He can't talk about sharing his faith. I was faithful to share my faith when I could. He can't talk about justification by faith. All this man has, and Begg says it so beautifully, 
All this man has, if someone says, why should I let you into my heaven? What in the world are you doing at this gate? All he has is, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. That's grace. That's grace. It's the only answer. And that's what's hidden in the manger. And like all good things, sometimes it's hard to see it. You could be Mary and have to hear it twice. You're highly favored of God. That's what's hidden in these elements, the bread and the cup. That's what's hidden before your very eyes. And without grace, your faith is nothing but a heavy load that will crush you and grind you into despair. But with grace, wow, grace changes everything. It changes everything. I want to pray with you. And if the worship team wants to come, they can. I want to pray with you about grace this morning. Because, you know, I could have been raised in that Alliance Church, and wherever I got that idea that Jesus didn't like it when I confessed my sin because it ticked them off. I could, I, I, I could still have that mentality. You could have that mentality. That somehow they have to do something to get Jesus to forgive you. All you need to do is take your heart to him. Jesus, I need you. That's all you need to do. And he forgives you. So I want to pray with you kind of on two counts. One count is that if you never really got that before, if you always felt like being a good Christian was about do, 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 that you would get that it's about done, that he done it. He has done it. And that you would trust in his grace. Maybe for the first time, really trusting in his grace. You know, and I can hear people say, well, be careful. You know, there's grace, but there's truth, preacher. Yeah, the truth is, Jesus is gracious, <laughs> and his grace is all you need. Because when you get a hold of that, when you understand he did it all, then suddenly living a life that reflects that is not like having a ball and chain of duty strapped to your leg. It's like having wings to fly. Because your life is a life of gratitude that he did it all and you simply received it. That grace was a one-way transaction from the sender to the recipient from Jesus to you. And when you receive that, the Spirit of God does change you in a way that you may never have been changed before. So number one, I want to pray that maybe for the first time you really understand grace. Number two... I want to pray that you can stay away from this incredibly magnetic draw that I've seen happen in so many Christians' lives. That they understand grace, but as they begin to walk with Jesus and have this sense of duty upon them, they kind of lose track of grace. Because remember, as with all things of God, it can become hidden. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing these things, doing these Christian things to make God like us. What? No. He likes you already. And he takes delight in what he has created. And he takes delight in forgiving that which he's created. That doesn't mean we sin all the more so grace can abound. It means we're like, wow, I love this grace. I want to live in this grace. So my first prayer will be for those who maybe really have never gotten a hold of the grace that you can say to God, 
I want the grace. The second prayer is that those of us that have gotten a hold of the grace will never lose sight of it, and it will never lose its grip on us. Okay? Does that sound like a thing we should pray about? I kind of like it. You have no idea how tired I am. (laughs) I stand here by the grace of God. Would you please stand with me? If I was kind of babbling a little bit there, boy, poor Eric, when he prayed for me to preach, he said, help him be concise. And you all said amen in your hearts. I knew you did. Okay, let's focus a minute. Have you ever looked at God and said, I receive the grace, thank you, because that's what being saved is? Have you ever done that? If you haven't, then we'll pray in a minute. Second, have you done that? But suddenly your Christian faith is becoming a bit of a, a sense of duty and not an expression of joy. That's what we'll pray about second. So let's bow our hearts together. Father, we come to you as people who need grace. And we come to you because we see right here in the Christmas story, you love giving grace. I pray for individuals here who may be, by well-intentioned friends, family, pastors, whatever, have, have misunderstood what being saved really is and that they uh, never really got that it's Jesus' grace. And I can understand how well-intentioned people would want to say, but you know, it's not like you just say, yeah, I like the grace, and then you just go on living. But, but, but they're, they're just a little bit off the mark because when you know you need the grace, then you're incredibly grateful for the grace, and the joy of receiving the grace trans, transforms you. And so right now, God, they open their heart, and they say, Jesus, I need the grace. Forgive me. I trust you. I will delight, I will take delight in following you. And as they say that, may they recognize in their spirit, may you, Holy Spirit, communicate with their spirit that this is it. They finally got it. And they belong to you. And belonging to you, all of us who belong to you, may we realize your grace holds us strong. We will never use grace as an excuse for sin to abound because we so cherish it, we would never want to kind of treat it in that blasphemous way. Do not allow us to slip into any kind of rules and regulation mentality, but may we live our Christian life from a sense of the joy of having received the grace from now into eternity. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So this is not important for you to do, but if you really sense God's grace in a significant way in your life, and you tell me that, I'll pray for you, okay? I'm not looking every head bowed and every eye closed. Nothing wrong with that. It's not my style. But I do love to hear your story. And if you've experienced God in a significant way this morning, um, I'd love to hear about that. Scripture tells us on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. And afterward, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new testament in my blood. Take this as often as you take it in remembrance of me. We just talked about how this bread and this cup, and by the way, if you forgot to get yours, you can slip out and get it right now. We just talked about how, how these are reminders of God's grace. They're reminders of what Christ has done for us. And we take this in 
remembrance to be reminded of that because I need reminded a lot, right? It says one should examine oneself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. If you're trusting in Christ, I invite you to participate. We kind of had that examine yourself moment, but I want to take just another moment. If Laurel would play something on the piano, I'd like to take just another moment. If there's any spiritual housekeeping you want to do privately between you and God before you take the bread or the cup, I'd invite you to do that as Laurel plays. Jesus, we, uh, when we take spiritual inventory that way, um, we're just looking for things in our hearts that are troubling us because we know they're bad, not what, what would be appropriate. And we are thankful we can not just take them to you, but we can run to you. And we find grace. Thank you for your, <laughs> thank you for pouring out grace after grace in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we take the bread or the cup, I'm going to ask one of the elders if they would pray a prayer of thanks for the bread, and then we'll take it together. Lord, thank you for this representation of your body. Lord, thank you for the ability to come to you and confess those things that are not pleasing to you. Thank you for the way we can speak with you and walk with you and talk with you. Thank you for the man who was on that middle cross. And the way he gave his life for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The body of Christ. And the scripture says that afterward, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid and you were going to be a blood brother with another kid and neither of you had the courage. (laughs) Jesus had the courage. This represents the covenant in his blood. It represents his grace. I'm going to ask Matt if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the cup. Matt? Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And even hearing Laurel play my favorite Christmas carol, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what gets me out of bed some mornings, knowing that you've been there and you've done that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the joy that was sat before you. you. You endured the cross and you despised the shame. And now you're sitting at God's right hand. You were willing to take our burdens. Thank you even as we take this cup that symbolizes your blood that was poured out after they pulled out your beard and put 
a crown of thorns on your head and beat you so severely that you were marred, even as Isaiah predicted. You were disfigured. You endured it for us. And help us to run there and to understand that you didn't just do it out of obligation. You did it out of joy. You did it out of free choice so that you could restore us, so that you could buy us back from the slave market of sin, so that you could redeem us and make us into your children. Thank you for that gift. And help us to take it with joy. And it's hard, and I struggle emotionally how to reconcile all those things. But if you tell us to rejoice, we need to rejoice. When you tell us who you are, help us to listen and help us to obey, even if it's tough or confusing. But thank you, dear Lord, in your name. Amen. The blood of Christ. This is a perfectly fitting hymn, uh, chorus, not chorus, carol to end with. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll sing.